walking at a standstill on the highway. Inexplicably, it stopped just outside his exit. He's getting angry because it looks as if he'll miss his hospital appointment. Beth is stressed. Replacing the family car has wiped out their savings. Now she's worried that they won't have enough money at the end of the month. When her husband comes home with an expensive-looking bunch of flowers to cheer her up, she bursts into tears. Colin is getting very frustrated. He's trying to get a new community project going, but everything seems to be going wrong. As a result, he's getting irritated with his kids. Dorothy's lying awake at night thinking about her friend Eileen. Eileen seems to be slipping into postpartum depression. Dorothy's looked after Eileen's baby a couple of times, but she has her own responsibilities. She wishes she could do more. We've all seen it when two people engage in a discussion and then devolve into talking past each other, not really listening, and maybe even into a full-blown fight. As the observer, you go, I'm not sure the topic or decision is really the issue now. There seems to be an issue underneath the issue. Whether it's taking out the trash to doing the dishes, becoming about love and respect, or deciding on a place to eat and making plans become a talk about independence and responsibility, or finances and future planning become a talk about unresolved pain. Now, while I've drawn a clear line between a topic and a potential underlying issue, we all know in day-to-day life, the path isn't always so clear. In today's text, Jesus shows us how to navigate the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has known and he has told his disciples that he is preparing to lay down his life. And to follow after him means sacrificing self for the good of others. It means serving others. It means putting others first and really denying self. And we finally see that Jesus has arrived in Judea. And we are thrust into a confrontation with the Pharisees. The last time we saw the Pharisees, we have seen that they they begin to challenge Jesus. And earlier in Mark, we, we know that they were planning to kill Jesus along with the Herodians. And verse 2 says that the whole intention of their encounter was to test him. Verse 2 says they came to test him. This is what's so frustrating about this passage. There were issues about marriage, gender, and sexuality back in Jesus' day. And instead of hearing Jesus on these issues, the Pharisees decide to weaponize their power in a world of pain. To raise an issue that's really not about an issue at all. And to understand the issue and the issue under the issue... We need to understand how that how the Jewish people viewed marriage. In ancient Judaism, marriage was not regarded as a union of equals for the mutual benefit of both partners, but rather as an institution whose chief purpose was the establishment and continuance of the family and whose chief enemy was childlessness. It was well known that Jewish law permitted divorce. And the Pharisees reflect the view of that marriage is a disposable contractual arrangement. And this type of sentiment is reflected in our world today by the slogan, it's just a piece of paper used to both downplay the necessity for marriage and to justify its dismissal after. 
Well, we may balk at that ancient idea and how it was perpetuated that marriage is just some contractual arrangement. Our world actually believes a similar sentiment. In today's world, we may exchange that definition for one that says marriage is primarily an emotional commitment to one another. It's more about something intangible and of personal expression. So when the world changes inevitably and when our spouse changes inevitably or when the next stage of life comes inevitably, we feel a letdown. Why? Because marriage is not regarded as a union between two equals for mutual benefit of both partners. Instead, marriage is utilized for personal fulfillment and self-actualization. Another way of putting it, we want to set the terms of what marriage is. We want to define all the limits. And Jesus even brings us up about what does Moses say, and we see that Moses gave permission as an attempt to minimize the pain in a sin-soaked world. As a result of the consequences of sin begin to saturate our lives. The Pharisees then are bringing this question to Jesus from a place of power rather than of sincerity. They really don't want his answer on the question. There's an underlying issue at stake. What's at stake is certainty, power, and control. Because their certainty, power, and control is disintegrating as Jesus truly embodies the law. The Pharisees know how Jesus answers the question on divorce will determine their best course of action on how to kill him. They can attempt to get Jesus to address the issue with not dealing with their own underlying issues. If Jesus answers this question contrary to the law, then the Pharisees will have grounds to kill Jesus. If Jesus answers a question, a yes or no question, by the way, with a no, then the Pharisees will be able to get the Herodians to kill Jesus, just as John the Baptist had been sentenced to death and beheaded. Jesus was being asked whether Antipas was justified or not in divorcing his wife to marry again. There are layers here. And so what seems like a simple moral quandary or, or a, and maybe an open-ended question on a stance, actually, there's an underlying issue brought about by the issue. And so Jesus sidesteps the tactic employed by the Pharisees without dismissing the moral question. Jesus does this by not making a definitive statement and instead by asking a question back to the Pharisees. His question is designed to bring them into a realignment with the scriptures. Jesus challenges their question and addresses their motive while still showing God's best in this encounter. In doing so, Jesus quotes from Genesis 1.27 on how in creating the man and woman to reproduce God's image into others, that union wasn't something contractual but designed to fulfill the will of God. In doing so, Jesus expressly declares the value of both maleness and femaleness. Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for personhood, not to argue about its possible exceptions. And as we look at this passage, we're tempted to begin, so what about Jesus? You know, and, and we begin to draw out conclusions from this passage that, that weren't made or shouldn't be concluded from this passage because we want to use this passage in terms of a moral issue in some ways to maintain power. There are other passages of scripture that speak to these challenges and what Jesus shows us in this moment. 
is that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The issue is not the issue that's been brought about. It's actually the underlying issue. And Jesus shows us this by also in conversing with his disciples because the disciples want to know the answer to the divorce and remarriage that the Pharisees have brought up. But Jesus' answer to their questions demonstrate that they were also wanting to know what they could condone and what they needed to condemn. In exchange for the condone and condemn quandary, Jesus gives the prophetic. Jesus teaches that marriage is not male-dominated institution, but a new creation of God to which both male and female are equal responsible to practice a lifelong discovery of Jesus and what it means for them. He expressly critiques the Jewish view of marriage and again affirms the equality of the husband and wife in marriage. Every day we have the opportunity to approach our world in a prophetic way, with a prophetic voice, instead of in a way that's dominated with power. See, power says, I'll make you believe and do what I want because I have the authority. Or I will manipulate you into getting things the way I want. It's an I make you mindset. I'll make you do what I want. I'll make you believe what I want. While the prophetic says, I'll show you the best way. Not one of pride or arrogance, but one that humbly follows after Jesus. And the follower of Jesus will face tests to this mindset that that compares and contrasts uh, power and the prophetic. And if we're to opt for the way of Jesus, then we will choose the prophetic way. Now, as I say that word prophet, I'm not describing future telling while there is an element of future. It more or less revolves around two central questions. Question one, who is God? What is his nature? And when we begin to understand who God is and what he is like, we'll begin to understand who we are and how we should respond. Which leads us to that second question. What does God require of us in this particular place and time? How then shall we live? These questions provide the focal point for us to realign our hearts, our minds, and actions with the will of God. When someone experiences sin and dysfunction in the world, the, the, the fear play or the power play is to call people to something that can be seen. For example, when swimming in the ocean, the one who trusts what they can see may shout, swim to the light, when in fact they are swimming deeper into the ocean. Whereas the prophetic functions like canaries in the coal mine that can identify the toxicity before anything has gone wrong. It challenges our reductionist yes-no mindset to get to the heart of the matter. Why do we need a yes or no? The different seats of power have the tendency to condone sin and condemn others. And every day you're being asked to make choices on what you will condone and what you will condemn through likes, shares, where you spend your money. Both the secular and the religious face these pressures to identify and dismiss or identify and approve. And there are all different taxes to make someone do what 
you want or to adhere to a moral standard that undermines the very way of God itself. The end does not justify the means. and We hope the means match the end through wisdom by understanding the prophetic call of the believer. Jesus was the authority in the room. He could have given the crowd and the Pharisees a definite statement. Instead, he asks a question, and he challenges them to revisit the scriptures in search of the ideal. With the disciples, Jesus does not ask the question, but gives them a statement that challenges them to revisit the scriptures, to see it in a new light. In a sin-soaked world, we want to know the exceptions in order to justify our sin. But sin is living a life where our own perspectives is authoritative. Instead, we must return to the story with the help of the Spirit to navigate daily choices. To know the difference between asking a question and giving a statement, we must return to the story with the help of the Spirit. We must revisit who God is and what He is like in our connection to him and what he says about us and invite the spirit to shape us so then then out of that we will begin to know how to act see jesus is comfortable with the unresolved tension in the moment where we are often not and we will fall into the trap of condemnation or condoning because we simply want to resolve the tension Jesus doesn't give a great answer to a black and white question. He gives us a way to receive the answer when faced with the tension. He gives us a beautiful answer to sometimes a black and white question, a way that calls us to something more rather than helps us settle for just simply condoning or condemning. We must revisit the scriptures again and again in order to challenge our own views of the scriptures themselves. See, if we don't come back to the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then we will begin to drift apart from the the story that has changed us and is changing us and that wants to change us. If we don't come to the cross again and again, we will begin to feel distant from God, disconnected from his power, and indifferent to his glory. And that is a recipe for sin. Being prophetic in our world begins with the realignment of our own lives to God's grace. Being prophetic in our world means change is happening in our lives. Through the scriptures, we get to the heart of every matter. Change happens in our world when change starts with us, with personal change, when we evaluate the heart behind our actions. See, living a prophetic life does not condone sin in our lives or in the lives of others, yet it does not condemn those who do. To condone means no change is ever needed. To understand this, let's consider what uh, it looks like to condone for someone who gets angry, utilizing context, upbringing, personal history, or even biology. Just common excuses that that we might use as a way to, to push aside the change that the Holy Spirit wants to bring in our life. Context. He just made me so mad. It was so unfair. You'd have done the same thing if you would have been in my situation. Upbringing. I take after my father. He used to get angry. I learned my anger from him. Personal history. 
You'd be an angry person if you'd been through what I've been through. Biology. It's just the way I am. I'm hot-headed. There's nothing I can do about it. While all of these explanations may have some truth, our hearts portray our actions as inevitable, unavoidable, and appropriate. And when we condone, we create distance with each other and with God. And we settle for something we can see rather than allow the Holy Spirit to bring about change, thus enabling us to bring change in our world. See, God isn't out to get us. God is out to grace us. And when we think that God is out to get us, we will, we will think of ourselves as always being condemned. Condemnation says that someone is unfit for use based on certain actions, like a house that cannot fulfill its purpose, thus it cannot be inhabited. And when we condemn or we feel like we stand under condemnation, we create distance both with others and ourselves, and both condemnation and condoning are coping mechanisms. Jesus says all people have value even when they bring brokenness. Therefore, change is possible through my grace. See, this is the hope for you. That as Jesus looks at you, as as he sees you maybe trying to make an issue that's not really an issue, he says, I see to the heart of the matter. I see to your heart. You're afraid to change. You're afraid that you're not good enough. You're, 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 you're fearful that you'll, you'll never live up to the standard. That, that, that things are always out of your control. And Jesus says, to that I offer grace. The pressure is off because I have taken the pressure on. I've taken the pressure on through the cross. I have laid my life down so that you may have it so that you don't have to live in a world where the constant pressure is to condone or to condemn, because I have confirmed you through my grace on the cross. And to learn that and to live in the midst of that, in a world that says condone or condemn, we must revisit that. And it's not something that just happens, we know, over a singular encounter where we completely always get it. We know that our lives are more than a light switch that we can just turn on or off. The urges, the emotions, the thought patterns. Therefore, when we have differences, when we, when we fall or feel pressured to condone or condemn, we must return to the scriptures together with others. Let me repeat the words of William Romine. No sin can be crucified either in the heart or in life unless it's first pardoned in conscience. If it is not mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. Richard Lovelace claims that the main reason Christians do not change is a failure to grasp God's grace by saying, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensiveness, assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. Condone or condemn. They cling desperately to legal pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches of the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental 
insecurity. We must exchange the lie that every choice we make is either to condone or condemn. Begin to understand that it's not in our control, that God is great. So that I don't have to be in control of people or situations. See, Jesus gave up his authority and power on the cross to secure our position in the family. Jesus was raised from the dead when it seemed like all was lost. When the issues become less about the issues themselves and become more about the issues under the issues, we face a tension to begin to identify them more in terms of dismissal and and, and creating distance where Jesus says, return to my story. Return to who I say you are. Return to, to my faithfulness and what I have done again and again to that I have the power to bring about change in your life. That you don't need to work for approval, that you don't need to maintain control, that you don't need to maintain your power. But in the midst of it all, search the scriptures and allow my Holy Spirit to bring about change, which enables us at Generations Church to not have to play a gotcha game like the Pharisees. We don't have to buy into the lie that the Pharisees believe that Jesus is out to take our lives away, that we have to to be the, the, the measuring stick mentality in our world. Rather, we simply get to live and we get to show others what it looks like to be continuously changed by God's grace. And there's a freedom that comes from that, that following Jesus brings a better life, better relationships, and a better world because we put his story and who he says about us over our sin. That we stop to identify each other by our differences and start to identify our place in the story. That together from differences and walks of life and different backgrounds, that we can follow Jesus together. That sometimes the issues we raise are less about the issues and more about our issues. And when we begin to deal with them with the cross and resurrection and understand that Jesus has dealt with us in his grace, we will have grace and space for others in our lives. And we can begin to continue to practice that together.